All right, so just going to give a real quick recap of chapter one, the first 14 verses, uh, just to see how we got to where we are this morning. So Paul, when he starts this letter to the Colossians, as a lot of his letters, they kind of open up with a prayer. It's his prayer for them. And so there in the first few verses, you'll see his prayer begins. It's a prayer of thanksgiving. He's thankful for their faith that they have in the Lord. He's also thankful for their love that they clearly are expressing to one another. He's thankful for the hope that they have. They have the hope of Christ. They have the hope of heaven. It's the same hope that you and I have today. And then he shifts his attention in that prayer to one of intercession. He begins to intercede for them. And so then he calls them, he says, his prayer for them is that they would walk worthy of the Lord, that he would, they would walk in a manner that is pleasing to him and that their lives, their lives would be fruitful for the kingdom. And so all that, he, he begins to do this. And now we arrive here at verse 15. And Paul is going to take some time here to remind them. He's going to remind them that Christ Jesus, their Lord and Savior, has the preeminence, that's to say the supremacy, or we could just simplify it, that's to say that Jesus Christ has first place in all things. Do you know that? He has first place. He has the supremacy. Why they need this reminder, Jay, that feels kind of obvious. They needed this reminder because false teachers had begun to creep their way into the fellowship. And one of the false doctrines of others, but one of the main doctrines that they began to teach is they began to remove the deity of Christ. Is that a good idea? That's terrible. If we remove the deity from Christ, what do we have left? We just have a man. The deity is what makes him the God-man. So that was beginning to happen. They began to say, well, he was just the first one created by God. But he isn't God. They would never say that he was God himself. And here's the thing, with like many false teachings, things that can make it complicated, is you overlay them with partial truth. But at the end of the day, if it's just a partial truth, it's just false. And they, so they would never deny the importance of Christ. They would even give him like a distinguished place in their philosophy. But they would never give him his rightful place. And that's a big difference. They wouldn't give him his rightful place, that he is God, that he is preeminent, that he is, to say, supreme over everything. And so Paul says here, you know, guys, now that I've taken the time to pray, I just want you to know, I just want to remind you guys of who your Savior is. That everything is by him, that everything is through him, that everything is for him, and that he truly is preeminent in all things. So let's go ahead and read our passage for this morning, picking up in verse 15, and we'll read down through 18. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. 
For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Amen? So Paul starts here by saying, he is the image of the invisible God. And what Paul is saying is that in him being the the image of the invisible God, he's saying that Jesus is an exact representation of him. He's the exact representation. All of who God is, all of his perfections are accurately and fully manifested in Christ. That's what it is. Jesus was not a rough sketch of who God is. Have you ever had somebody draw you up a rough sketch of something? Maybe it's a room they want to remodel. Maybe it's something that they want to do, and they kind of sketch it out, and they're like, this is what I like to do. You look at it, you're like, what are you trying to do? In the end, we have no idea. Jesus is not a rough sketch. Jesus is the exact representation of who God is. That's who our Lord and Savior is. This is why Jesus said to Philip in John 14, 9, he said, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? Who wants to be Philip in that moment? Not one of us. He says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say Show us the Father. He's saying, I am the image. I am the exact representation. You've seen him because you've seen me. Also, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by his prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and he sat down because it was done. The work was finished. He is the invisible God made visible. That's who Jesus is. He was the invisible God made visible. All of his attributes, all of his perfection manifest in Christ. Well, let's continue. Paul goes on to say that he is the firstborn over all creation. James says right there that he's, he was the firstborn, which seems to indicate a moment, right, that he was created. Well, then we need to understand what is he exactly saying about firstborn? Because 
it doesn't really work to say that he was created when in verse 16 it says that he created all things. And then when we get to 17, it says that he was before all things. So what does it mean when he says that he was firstborn? And the first thing we need to understand that with firstborn, he's not talking about time. This isn't an issue over time as Christ being the first thing created. All of us have a date on the calendar that we were born, right? May 12th, 1975. You can probably guess who was born. I was born. And I want to tell you, that day changed my parents' life forever. Now, we can debate how it changed their life forever. They were here last service. I did not point them out in case people decided they wanted to make any inquiries of which direction that went. So we'll just keep it one-sided. It was good. It was really good for them. We have one. There's a date. Firstborn here, as we speak of Christ, speaks of rank. It speaks of priority. It speaks of importance. Jesus was not part of creation. What does it say? It says Jesus was over creation. He participated in it. And that's what distinguishes him. So Paul here, right in this very first verse, in this first section says, Jesus is the only perfect visible representation of God and he is the firstborn not of creation. He's the firstborn over creation. And because he's over it, he's divine. And because he's divine, he is God. Jesus is God. And if you go, well, is that statement sufficient? That's sufficient for me right there. But Paul goes on. He goes on to say in verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and that are on the earth, all things that are visible, that are invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. And what Paul is beginning to say right here is that there is absolutely nothing in the natural or in the supernatural world that he did not create. He covers it all. Jesus created all of it. He was a part of every aspect of creation. For John chapter 1, verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made. He is the agent of creation. He created it all. All that was made in the heavens are his handiwork. You know, we only get glimpses of that, right? You, grab, you start reading through a book like Ezekiel or Revelation, and they start to describe the throne room, the sea of glass, all these things, and we're trying to wrap our head around it because we're using human terms to describe it. It's wild. We're like, what is happening there? It's amazing. These are all the things that he authored. You know what my favorite part is? Is that one day all these things are going to come into full view for us. 
One day, all of this is going to be our reality. And do you know what the best part is? We'll see it. We'll be like, wow. And there's going to be Jesus. We'll be face to face with our Lord and Savior. I can't wait. Can you wait? Yeah, that excited for heaven. It's good to hear. I can't wait. That should be the most exciting part. One day you will be with your Lord and Savior. You will see him face to face forever. If that's not exciting, I don't know what to do for you. Because it doesn't get any better than that. You put your Savior in heaven of what awaits in one side of the scales. What do you put in in the other side that's better? Nothing. Nothing compares to it. Says also everything that is here on earth, he created every animal, every plant, every rock, every precious stone, every mineral, the oceans, the rivers, the lakes, the mountains, the valleys, the deserts, the rainforests, in all those things, we get to witness his handiwork. It's his handiwork. It's his creativity. I mean, have you ever seen an animal and he just went, man, he had fun making that. Have you ever done it? Just say, look at that thing. Like for me, so my family and I, we served in Costa Rica and the animal that did that for me was a three-toed sloth. What I loved was, well, number one, I loved his pace of life. He just took everything easy. There's a lot. Well, apparently, you guys have taken that into consideration, too, because you guys are super mellow. <laughs> they just love life, and they take it slow. But you know what my favorite part was? It has a permanent smile on its face. It never, I promise you, look up any picture of a three-toed sloth, it's just smiling all the time. It's perpetually happy. Life is good. The other one, a platypus. We don't know what it is. <laughs> Nobody knows how to define it. It's a marvel to science, a platypus. And because we don't know what it is or anything, that's why we name it platypus. Even the name's funny. These are the things, these are, it, it, it's a picture of his handiwork. If you get to go out to California and you see the redwoods or the, the, the sequoias, you could drive a car through a tree. Think about how majestic that must be to stand in the midst of that. And that's his handiwork. It should leave us in awe when we look at his creation. From the highest heights of the Himalayan mountains, this is the weirdest thing when we were over in Nepal to be in a plane and looking up at a mountain. It will leave you in awe to the lowest lows of the Dead Sea. We have the beauty of the Lord's creativity. And you know what's amazing? Is we get to see so little of the visible world. We see so little of it. If I take my glasses off, I got nothing. I got nothing of the visible world. It's so little what we see. And then I, you know, you think about 
in Paul's day, when he's writing this, what they had of the visible world. They they weren't able to break out the photo album and, and look at places. They didn't have Instagram to look at everybody else's wonderful vacation and where they were. They didn't have telescopes to be able to look all the way up into the heavens and see all the planets and all the stars and everything that's going on up there. They didn't have any of that. But here's what it is. But they had enough to draw their hearts towards the heart of God. They could see it. It was his work in creation. Creation is a gift. It's a gift. Have you seen the moon? Can you imagine if all humanity lived on the moon? What you got? Craters, dirt, rocks. It blows my mind because we keep trying to get there. (laughs) And now we're trying to get past it to Mars. Why? Dirt, rocks, craters. That's all they're offering. Look at what we have here. We have the beauty, we have the handiwork of our Lord. Every time, when you walk out the door, every tree, every leaf, all those things, it's wonderful. We get to see all the creative details of our Lord and Savior. And that should leave you and I breathless. It should leave us in awe. And it should turn our hearts towards him. And it should just give us a heart of worship and praise for all that he is. And we know this because he's the master architect behind it all. He's the one who did it. The bottom line is every created being in heaven and in earth owes its very existence to Jesus. It owes its existence to him. He's so amazing. Well, let's continue. Verse 16 says that all things were created through him and for him. So as I said earlier, Christ is not part of the creation, but he is the one that was over it. But it also states that he created it for himself. He created it for his glory. It's for his glory. I mean, listen, we can all agree this morning that the universe is vast. Yes? It is vast. If I take a little time and I like try to begin to ponder the universe, it starts to mess with my head. It's just, it's so big. Right? Because we ask, you go, where does it start? I don't know. Where does it end? I also, I don't know. We don't know where it starts. We don't know where it ends. Nobody knows. Have you ever seen a picture of the earth from a distant area, from space, looking back at it? Do you know what the picture looks like? If you haven't seen it, do it. It, It's very intimidating. It's a speck. It looks like a speck of dust. That's all it is. What we are sitting on is a speck. It's so tiny. And yet, and yet, here on earth, this place that the Lord himself formed, he, this would become the place where he would display his purpose 
in his perfection. He chose here. He chose here to show us his perfection. Right here would be the setting for the Son of God, for Jesus to come and display to his creation the absolute wonder of redeeming love. We get to see that. We see how much he loves us. I mean, meditate on that for a moment. Would you realize how small we are? He used this place, his creation, to demonstrate to us the depth of his sacrificial love so we'd be able to see it and understand it in him at the cross. He let us see his perfect grace, his perfect mercy, and he did all of that. Why? We needed him so he could rescue us, so he could redeem us, so he could give us life, and not just life, but give us life more abundantly. That's what we've been given. Ephesians 3, 17 through 19 says, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length in depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Guys, you truly know how much he loves you. You understand how much he loves you. The width of it, the length of it, the depth of it, the height of it, do you know how much he loves you? I mean, why does he use all four directions? Why does he just say how deep the, the, the love of God is for us? He goes in every direction. He does that because he helps us to understand no matter where you try to go in any direction, you can't reach the end of his love. There's nowhere you can go from it. I'll go deeper. No, you won't. I'll go higher. Not a chance. What if I go left? Go for it. Still not outrunning it. He loves you that much. He loves you perfectly. His love is divine. Verse 17 goes on to say, And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. So again, we clearly see that he was before the first thing that was ever created, which then would make him eternal. At the Council of Nicaea, speaking of the eternality of Christ, this is what they determined. That no matter how far back we may press in our imagination, we can never reach a point where we may say, there was once when he was not. Can. No matter how hard you try to concentrate or think or how far you think your mind can go backwards, you will never reach a place where Christ was not. He's eternal. He also goes on to say that all things in him consist. And that's to say that everything in him is held together, that everything in Christ is sustained. He alone holds everything together. And that's what we see. Nothing is ever 
out of order. Nothing's out of order. Sunrise to sunset, does it happen every day? Okay, it sounds like some of you are undecided. <laughs> this evening around 7.30, take a little time, you'll see something nifty happen. <laughs> if you want to see what may happen again the next day, I'll encourage you to wake up around 6. You'll see something really neat then too. Then you'll put that together. It happens, in case you're wondering, it does. It happens every day. Sunrise and sunset. The phases of the moon, if you're unsure about them, they're marked on your calendar. I know when it's full, I know when it's not there, and I know when it's halfway, and I know it's doing other things. I'm not quite sure what they are, but it's doing them. And it does it every month. Faithfully, it's in order. The tides, they rise, they go out, then they rise again, and then they go out. And they do it every day. The planets are held where they need to be perfectly. Perfectly. You know, I'm so thankful that we don't get pushed any closer or any further from the sun. How about you? I'm thankful for right where we are. Now, I understand there are days and it feels like we might have pushed a little closer. <laughs> but we didn't. The Lord holds everything together perfectly. And you know what's amazing? It's not a strain. It's not a strain for him to hold things together. Right? Don't have this picture of the Lord holding the universe going, if I can only keep it together. He's got it. It's easy. Well, verse 18, and let's bring this to a close. And it says, and he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. And so here we see once again positionally where Christ stands but this is now in relation to his church. And it says he stands at the head because the church finds its beginning in him. Without him, we have no church. We're just a bunch of people getting together. He is what makes us the church. It's Christ. In him also we see just that beautiful union that we have between him and us. What we see is that he desires a relationship with us. What we see is that he desires actually a close relationship with us. He wants an intimate relationship with us. That's what he desires. It's his church. And then he goes on to say that Christ is the firstborn from the dead. So we see that word firstborn again. And maybe you're thinking, how is he the firstborn from the dead? Lazarus was resurrected. And to that, you are correct. There's a big difference between Lazarus and Jesus. What did Lazarus get to do again? He died. What a bummer, huh? You imagine? You already went through it. Then you come back and you're like, man, I got to do it again. Lazarus died twice, but here's the difference. When Jesus rose, he conquered death. He conquered it and even conquered the sting of it. He rose and he would never die again, making him the firstborn from the dead. That's what's the difference. 
And because he rose, what does that tell us? If we place our faith and our trust in him, it means we will rise also and we will be with him forever. That's a promise. Our future is secure and our future is glorious. And that's the future that we have in him. And here at the end, Paul just makes a simple declaration. He says that in all things, Jesus, he may have the preeminence. That Jesus is supreme. That he is supreme in everything. He is preeminent, as we've seen today, what? In creation. He is preeminent in the universe. He's preeminent in resurrection life. He's preeminent in his church, which means plainly for each and every one of us this morning that he must have the preeminence in our life. Without exception, it's not an option. Does Jesus have the preeminence in your life? Does he have the supremacy in your life? Is Jesus truly first place in your life? It belongs to him. It belongs to him and him alone. It's not to be shared. And why does he get to have the preeminence in our life? Because of who he is and because of what he's done. He's the only one worthy of it. He alone is worthy of the preeminence in our lives, not just a prominent position. And that's where we need to be careful. Does Jesus actually have the preeminence in your life or have you just provided him the space of a prominent position in your life? And he's there with other things in your life also. Or have you given him, have you surrendered the entirety of it to him? Because listen, that's what the false teachers were doing. They gave him a prominent position, but they would never give him the preeminence. And only you can answer that. And we need to be careful not to let anything in this life to compete with Christ for the throne of our hearts. We can't. It belongs to him. And we have to be careful that we don't divide up our life into different compartments. I got 25% for my work. I got 25% for school. I got 25% because it's me time and I need some of that too. And oh, Jesus, you're going to love it. I've given you 25%. He's worthy of all of it. 100% surrendered to him. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and these other things will be added unto you. On the cross, Christ gave it all so he could have our all. He held nothing back. He set that standard for you and I. Be sure that he has all of your heart, all of your life, everything surrendered to him. We're going to get ready to open the communion table here now. We're just going to have, you know, my encouragement. Just take some time to reflect on your life. Take some time to think, Lord, do you truly have the preeminence in my life? Lord, is there something here that is competing with you? 
Is there something here also seated on the throne of my heart? Or Lord, have I given it over to you completely? Have I surrendered to you all my heart and all of my, my affections to you? Be sure that the Lord has it. Or is there something in your life that's competing with Christ? And as these elements are being passed, take time to do business with your loving Savior. And maybe that just means while you're sitting there, you just simply need to surrender your heart and your life. Again, do it. Let him have it all. And reflect then upon the cross where we see clearly how long, how wide, how high, and how deep his love truly is for us. Amen? And Lord, we do love you. Lord, and thank you so much. Lord, that when we look to you, we see our Savior who loves us, who gave everything for us. And Father, there's just so many things in our life that want to crowd you out. So many things that want to compete for our attention, that want to compete for our affection. And Lord, help us to live lives wholly surrendered to you because you're worth it and you're worthy of it. Lord, that we would hold nothing back for ourselves, Lord, but everything would be surrendered to you. And Father, this, we can do it. It's by your spirit. So Lord, if there are areas of our life that we need to let go of, Lord, give us the strength by your spirit to do so. Lord, that we would do as it said early in this letter, that we would walk in a manner that is worthy of you and that is pleasing to you. And we ask this in your precious name. Amen.